Welcome back to Behind the Why. I'm Teresa. And I'm Nigel. This is part two of our two-part episode on community actualization. Last episode, we spoke with Sakaya Tafari about his work with African Food Basket and how they addressed food justice and food sovereignty in Toronto's African, Caribbean, and Black community. They grew a network of supports and in doing so, strengthened the ties communities have to their cultures. Today, we're speaking with another community leader, Angela Coe. Angela's work centers around community-based learning and knowledge exchange to help build platforms for connected social research and policymaking with, for, and by equity-seeking groups. With well over a decade of experience working in the community and nonprofit sector, she currently works as a community developer with Toronto's West Neighborhood House, West for short. The first purpose of West is to support families and individuals in the community to address personal problems and create opportunities for personal growth. Their second purpose is to help groups of people facing common problems work together and with West Neighborhood House to find local solutions and change laws, government programs, social attitudes, and other external factors that create barriers. Welcome, Angela. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. How did you get involved with community-oriented work? Like what, how did you know that this was uh, your passion and, and what were, you know, if you can give us a little bit of a, a taste of your path and how you, you got to where you are today? Yeah, I think like many of us who work in the nonprofit sector, um, when we really think back into how we get into things, it often comes from an orientation towards uh, social justice and, and the ideas of how we can contribute back to the communities we find ourselves belonging to. So I think um, um, a reason why I think youth engagement is something I've always really centered is because that was very much my pathway into working at nonprofits and NGOs. Um, yeah, I don't know if I think it's definitely maybe a big part of why I find myself working in community-based spaces and community-based organizations. Like there is like crushing inequalities. Um, you see people a lot, people's lives um, being dismantled and displaced because of uh, not necessarily poor policy always, but the way policies slip when they're implemented in large human systems. Mm-hmm. Um, whether it's education, which was um, a big piece of work that I did a few years ago, um, or currently a lot of interactions with the healthcare system with our um, pandemic pivots. And also um, in the last few years, I've mostly focused actually on um, land use planning and, and development and housing and how all that intersects with economic opportunities. But mm-hmm. yeah, I think holding on to the optimism, um, it was really helpful to discover um, the kind of joy when neighbors come together and connect and and um, are able to create a shared vision for how they can act be actors in their own communities. Um, and that has always been really re-energizing. And it's interesting, you mentioned earlier about changing the systems, right? And so your work and the work of West is not just about, you know, localized supports, but it's also about changing large systems, but starting from the grassroots. I think that that's the best way to go about it in terms of how to create actual change or making sure that the change is going to be reflective of of the community. Um, But that's often, it's very much typically a top-down approach. Um, So how, how do you, as a community developer, find that you have to approach uh, from a bottom up? I think there's all kinds of ways that we we at West have the um, 
we've kind of invested a lot in how we center community in our spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, this is reflected in our like model for like, like our program planning cycles and building in those like feedback and evaluation loops, um, but also actively seeking out those opportunities that resource and invest in people to lead or self-direct activities. It's very intentional, I think, how we center communities to also really center like the amount of like knowledge and expertise they have and mm-hmm. possess. Mm-hmm. Right. So th- we kind of start with that assumption instead of um, when I think about this, uh, the d- different kinds of like systems and, and that we are operating with right now, like a, a, a really like traditional like p- public health um, and development paradigm would be that we are intervening. So that top down approach um, that you that you were mentioning um, mm-hmm. and intervention just doesn't become like a valid lens when you acknowledge that the people who you're trying to impact and support may like have important things to contribute. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's important to um, design for them to be partners at the table with you. Is it possible to put community at the center when you have the government and the private sector involved? Do you think that it can still be community-led? Um, I think there's three ways that you can that you sort of need to have in place to do this well. So for anyone who's looking to engage private sector stakeholders, um, A, remember like developers or bankers or um, large corporations are also fundamentally led by people. And it's, it's within human nature to be want to be part of something good. Um, and I think sometimes um, we end up contributing to the kind of like polarization we often see in a lot of conversations, right? We assume the developer is going to be the bad guy, or we assume the municipality is not going to care about community interests. Um, mm. And that's something actually at West, um, um, at my role, like that's something we've actually, actually actively identified as something we want to try to in whatever ways, and we definitely don't have the solution. But how can we as a community-based organization that brings together people from different walks of lives actually be a bit of a bridge and respond to the divisiveness that we see right now? Uh, I think secondly, when private sector or larger or institutions identify they have a need for community consultation or community involvement. As community-based organizations, we also need to remember that if we get those invitations, we do not represent, we are, we are not the communities themselves. We work in mm. them and we might support them, but we are, we and ourselves cannot be the default community voice. So right. when we are when we are asked to be in those spaces, how are we then bringing in um, actual uh, resident leaders, who can speak to issues directly. And then the third piece is we also need to actually then invest in like confidence building to right. navigate these spaces because right. so many consultations end up being tokenistic because we haven't actually done a lot to ensure that different actors are able to engage using a shared vocabulary. Mm-hmm. Right. And, mm-hmm. and I think when individuals who we primarily focus on are do not experience a lot of power and control in their lives, it creates a loss of faith in in any kind of like participatory process. I mean, you use the the word uh, the phrase um, confidence building. I feel like it's also similar to relationship building, right? And and oftentimes that kind of relationship needs to be built um, months or sometimes even years in advance of that consultation, right? Um, to show that 
you know, you are already a part of the community and you're already trying to, to do good. And then when called up, when you try to call upon the wider community, they, you're already seen as a trusted source. Uh, yeah, that's a really great point. Um, absolutely. I think community-based organizations have a responsibility when we are asked to broker our trust and relationships and make sure we're connecting residents to opportunities for not only meaningful participation, but genuinely shared processes of decision making. Because mm -hmm. otherwise we set expectations um, that are unfair and maybe unrealistic. Um, and yeah, I think it, it's, it, it really comes down to also being a bit humble as organizations too, right? It's easy to get caught up in the, I think, numbers you were mentioning and, and pressures to deliver, to fund their expectations. Mm -hmm. um, but remembering that uh, none of the work that we do would be possible without the communities um, that we work in. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the obstacles that you had to face that you didn't anticipate in this line of work? I think one thing I definitely didn't anticipate was if you told me five years ago, I would have to learn about how land use planning worked. I would not have seen that as part of like the scope of work I was engaging in. For anyone who's ever tried to like been at a, been at a consultation and I think you rapidly learn that there's an entirely new set of vocabulary um, involved, um, which is why, yeah, interestingly, for the last two or three years, we've actually been trying to figure out how to build not only confidence to navigate these systems, but actually what we call like policy and like planning literacy, um, because mm. you're very much learning a new language. Mm -hmm. Is there a way to include your community in that educational process so that they can learn how to better navigate the civil system? Um. Yeah, so it's something that we hope to do at West. We've recently reactivated our um, affordable housing coalition for the downtown West area. And it's we have a, like, incredible partners around the table who have been doing this in various ways. Um, I think lots of, um, there's been a lot of incredible cutting edge and re revolutionary work being done out of Parkdale at the moment with their community benefits framework and the land trust model. Um, sort of one of the energizing moments out of this pandemic is that sharpened awareness of, of issues that um, our communities were faces, but then a lot more willingness to try different things. Um, mm -hmm. When I think about modular housing, mm -hmm. which maybe four years ago, if you had suggested that at city council or to a local counselor, um, it would that would like just a, it was definitely like a policy outlier. I don't think you've gotten a lot of traction. And now we have um, you know investments from almost like every level of government to build this. Um, mm -hmm. yeah. I think that I mean, and on that note too, the rethinking of community safety, right, and the whole defund the police movement. West has 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 played a role in in some of these conversations. Um, is that something that you could have ever foreseen happening um, pre-2020? Well, I think Black Lives Matter as a movement has existed prior to 2020. Mm -hmm. um, I guess I just mean the uh, when you talk about the political will, right? Yeah. The Black Lives Matter movement has been um, around for several years now. Um, yeah. And their Toronto chapter is actually one of the strongest um, of, of all their networks. Um, but there's been a change in the political will for uh, our politicians to actually do something structurally to change. 
Yeah, I want. No, you're absolutely right. Um, it is a. Uh, um, there are really encouraging signals around what can be done. I think this is maybe an op. This is maybe just somewhere where like I'm not necessarily matching optimism. Um, in terms of uh, you know, we, I guess like for me, like an analogy, um, while very like distinctly different issues would be. Um, reconciliation continues mm-hmm. to be something that um, gets definitely more than its share of lip service, but also continues to be littered with broken promises. Right. So, um, yeah, I think so. Organizationally, I think we are um, definitely involved and in contributing to um, work connecting the community and and the city in developing alternatives to policing. I think we sort of have some, we we have some like unique positionality with this issue because we operate drop-in spaces, mm-hmm. um, often with individuals that have high like high um, the high level of interactions with the police. So that would be like our work at the meeting place, which has continued to stay open throughout the pandemic. Um, and my colleagues there have been um, superheroes to keep the space open um, for our unhoused neighbors. And this is like a drop-in center? It's a drop-in space um, at uh, Queen and Bathurst. Um, yeah, so I think we are really excited about how we can, like, how we can build a new model. Um, it's interesting, though, in terms of connections to other community organizers who have also participated in the city's consultations. And remembering that um, the city is looking at a range of different models um, from the U.S. and some of them are municipal led, but some of them are not. Um, and I think there has to be a lot of healing and trust building work done um, to um, to have uh, greater community support for a city led model, mm-hmm. um, so that it truly, I think, responds to. Um, the experiences of police brutality and abuse of power in our communities. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't think we have anything actively testing. We have proposals out there to different partners that have been interested in in exploring what alternatives to policing and ways of um, building community safety look like. Um, I can probably, like the more, the experience I have more directly with it is actually in some of our supportive housing and affordable housing work. We, we are among a group of partners that have been invited by UHN, the University Health Network, to think about housing as um, affordable, decent housing as something that healthcare systems prescribe. Doctors cannot treat um, individuals living with chronic illness um, and other like serious health conditions if they don't have, if they're unhoused, right? Like mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's clearly a, a precondition to any kind of healthy life that mm-hmm. um, individuals have rights to in our society. Um, and what does it mean as a healthcare provider to, to actively work with community partners to try and build and provide this? Um, so it will be interesting to see it happen as it rolls out and mm-hmm. um, community safety and integration into the community is I think where um, my work touches on. If you can try to, I guess, explain how you go about that process, how, how does one begin to even mobilize and organize <clears throat> and then facilitate those types of um, uh, collaborative initiatives? Um, 
I don't know if anyone does that perfectly. Right. So I guess I'll start with like, it's incredibly messy um, and often really unclear in terms of what is happening and how much momentum we truly have. And then you get your breakthroughs and like kind of really your low hanging fruit, um, which um, help um, like propel the workforce. Right. So I think a way that we also see it besides being an ecosystem investment, um, it's also very much movement building in some ways. Um, mm-hmm. And that becomes like, I think an easier thing to wrap around where we're never gonna end up necessarily in a finite place, right? There isn't gonna be this list of indicators that we check off and say, we have, a, we have achieved a perfectly just and equitable world that is safe and everyone belongs in and is supported to access every opportunity they want. Um, but what we understand is it's, it's building that sense of possibility. I think we do this by generating um, a sense of optimism that things can work better. And despite the constraints, despite the limited resources, and I think anyone in a nonprofit sector knows that the resources are always finite and never enough. Um, I think how much optimism we have about future matters and how we build that capacity for optimism matters. Um, And like I spoke to earlier, when certain groups are excluded from decision-making processes in our systems, they do lose confidence over time. Um, Rejection Mm -hmm. is a powerful formative experience. So how do we, I think it's a really vital aspect of engaging and centering the expertise of residents as partners. But how how do you keep yourself and your, your partners optimistic? I think, first of all, it's okay to have Um, that day or even days where you don't have a lot of faith and optimism. And I think that that, that's that concept of like toxic positivity. And that's not what we're we're about. We're not asking people to believe in us um, or as organizations that we can change things in their lives or positively impact them. We very much hope to. Um, But I think, um, yeah, I think it's like being gentle and kind with yourselves if you don't feel that optimism. Um, The world is pretty messed up. There are never going to be perfect solutions, um, and I think a, I think a big learning is to be okay with change being limited while not settling, um, and not being so hard and critical on if we haven't reached what we exactly where we want it to be. Um, I think that's the like the. I think it's fundamentally having some faith in the power of our social imagination, um, that we continue to dream about things being different from us. And in some cases, those dreams are born of urgency and necessity, right? We have um, racialized, like we're speaking about the Black Lives Matter movement earlier and um, racialized bodies have have died because of the way our systems work. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's not being, it's definitely, I think, this strange balance of being discontented with how things are, but not giving into cynicism. How do you tell someone who you're fighting for that your accomplishments may be limited? I don't think it's a question of me telling them that. I think it's a process of designing and facilitating a process where they engage in their own critical thinking and analysis. So um, something that I'm super excited about is getting um, support for doing community development or even social services really um, in ways that also create a community-based platform for policy making and research. 
And I think when you engage participants or whatever community or group you want to impact in um, narrating their own experiences, articulating like their perceptions and observations of the world, um, transferring, I think that ownership of being like a knowledge creator and producer. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think it's really powerful to, to uh, see and, and, and hold spaces for people to um, produce knowledge, um, claim it as their own. And we are in all of our daily lives, learning more about ourselves, our neighbors, our communities. It's just creating those spaces to actually harvest that knowledge and then document it so that it can become something that you use in mm-hmm. a policy setting, whether to influence somebody, whether to create a baseline for negotiating with community benefits of a developer, um, whether to, um, in so in this case, like, you know, like connect to service providers and let them know like what you would like to engage them around. Mm-hmm. Right. I think it's interesting when, um, I mean, when asking you about this um, and with other things earlier in this, in this discussion, um, you know, about, you know, West neighborhoods, these being like West initiatives or, or West um, neighborhood house uh, based work. Um, you've been very clear in certain circumstances to clarify that they are, that West has partnered in collaboration, but they're very much neighborhood or resident based ideas. Yeah. And I think that's also something um that's really part of like how community development sees the work. Um, we, we don't deliver services, right? Um, like I'm not sure, like delivering a barbecue for instance counts um, as a service. Um, so it's, it's, it's definitely stepping back from the like very like traditional nonprofit service delivery to client like paradigm. Um, and it's, I think why, I think you had asked earlier about like energizing and, and staying motivated and, and doing this work. It's, it's an, at the end of the day, like an extraordinary privilege to be invested in as an individual to, to support and work with communities and, and, um, and engage them as partners in your own right. And I think we're strongly interested as an organization, but I also hope like increasingly we're not the only organization, right? Like there are definitely partners in the sector that do this as well. Whereas community-based organizations or social service providers, we do understand that lens and that um, whatever we're funded to do, we're also social change act- actors and we are interested in championing community-led change. Mm-hmm. And, and I mean, on that note, I'm sure like most nonprofits, you know, you, you thrive on volunteerism. Um, is there, um, is there a specific um, project that's currently being worked on or is there a specific area of your work that um, you'd like to do a volunteer call out in or, or just in general? Um, I think in general, we have been fortunate in our wealth of volunteers. We've actually had to limit and scale back because so many mm. of our programs have been um, um, offsite and remote. Um, and we also want to try to keep everybody safe and, and be right. mindful of public health guidelines. Um, we continue to slowly bring back, I mean, it's interesting timing right now, but we had been slowly bringing back volunteers to support our Meals and Wheels program. Um, but besides Wes, I would encourage everyone at this point to just be a really good neighbor. 
um, find out who might need an extra support or or just a check-in in your neighborhood um, and 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 try and do that. Um, so I'm actually going to direct it. I think in the West End, we have community fridges. They are volunteer-led and very grassroots. They don't get a lot of, or I think any traditional funding. They have a very specific model that is like no barrier and based entirely in self-identified needs. So they're a great organization to check out if you're looking to um, for an easy way to engage in these kinds of expressions of neighborhood solidarity. So Community Fridges Toronto is at CF underscore TO. CF underscore TO on Instagram. And then um, in terms of a project that I'm working on, and it's, again, it's a different way of volunteering. Um, when I say being a good neighbor, um, encouraging people to go out and get their boosters and getting vaccinated to keep our community safer. Um, if you have a story about how you, how you guided to, to, to get one, um, it, you'll be surprised by how powerful it is to share. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And that might be the, the lever that somebody or encouragement that somebody else needs because something that you say or share resonates with them. That's a very good point. I have a bit of a two-part question now. Is there anything you wish people knew about before entering or engaging with the sector? Also, is there anything you wish you could change about the nonprofit sector? Um, yeah, I think um, I came across something recently and someone was, um, it was a piece advocating for a four day work, work week. Um, and uh, yeah, I think it's something I say to my placement students and interns every year um, that, uh, Self-care is incredibly important. You will burn out. Um, you, we are incredibly under-resourced as a sector. Um, but this piece I was reading about how most sectors would say that, that most sectors would benefit in terms of productivity and efficiency if we switched to a four-day work week, um, except for investment banks and the nonprofit sector. Mm. Who And because both sectors are able to weaponize the idealism of 22-year-olds. um whether like for material gain which would be the i guess the investment banking um uh call out um or like this belief in in changing the world so i think as a sector we really do have to think about how um how we retain and support staff to um stay in the sector and not burn out um set realistic expectations and to remember to be as human and equitable as we can be um, as organizations. Amazing, thank you. Is there anything else that, uh, I mean, I really love what you said before about, you know, be a good neighbor. Um, is there any, any other trinkets of wisdom uh, that um, you'd like to leave our listeners with? Um, I think it would just be sort of sending everybody else out there and sources of like their own wisdom. Um, and and turning to someone who you might not usually engage in a conversation, who maybe you're suspicious of or distrustful of, or not sure about their intentions, um, and and hearing each other out a little, and hopefully we we end up on the other side of this pandemic a little bit less divided than we have been. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Angela. We really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us and share your knowledge with our listeners means a lot that we could have you on our podcast thank you for all the work that you do with west neighborhood house and all the work that west does and uh, we really yeah we really appreciate it 
Thank you for having me. This has been part two of episode two of Behind the Why, which concludes our discussion of community actualization and how we can and should put the community at the center of our work, our goals, and our solutions. Being community-oriented means moving forward together. It's a mentality and approach that allows us to better understand our own needs as individuals and the impact we have within the various communities we find ourselves in. Our individuality and uniqueness as people is important but we cannot forget about the interdependence and interconnectedness we have with all facets of society and the wider world. So how can you put this understanding into practice? Ask yourself, what are the inequities and injustices you see in your neighborhood, your city, your school, or even your place of work? Find out who in your community is already tackling this issue. Who are the local leaders? How are they organizing? It's important to take the time to do research, especially when you are not part of the community you wish to support. Doesn't matter where you start, what matters is that you find a way to contribute to solving the problem. There are never going to be perfect solutions. Being okay with the change being limited while not settling is critical. Visualize what community means to you and embody it. Thank you for listening to Behind the Why. In our next episode, we'll explore the challenges youth face when interacting with the mental health sector and how the various identities we carry influences how we navigate and access mental health support services. If you have any feedback or questions, please email us at behindthewhy at ymcagta.org. Thank you to the YMCA of Greater Toronto for supporting the production of this podcast. Thank you to Alex Shibu for curating the music and Leah Jimenez for the podcast artwork. Alex and Leah are both members of the YMCA Greater Toronto's Newcomer Youth Leadership Development Program. We appreciate you taking the time to listen. Take care.